0: Uh, man, I hope you guys are doing well. I hope you guys uh, got some, some coffee because it's delicious and you're going to need it for our time. We're, we're going to dive into scripture almost right away. We're looking at a really, really big chunk of scripture today. And uh, man, if I go quickly, I'm sorry. The sermon will be up this afternoon. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's, it's just a large chunk of scripture. So I would invite you to turn with me to Philippians. Chapter three, verses one through eleven. And so, while you open or load your Bible to that, I'll go ahead and ramble for just a brief moment, uh, and then we'll jump into our time. Uh, So, in case I I hadn't said anything, if you're new, my name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse. Uh, And because if you're new, there should be some connect cards on uh, on the chairs. Uh, We'd love to connect and hang out with you. We'd love to answer questions. Please fill them out, drop it in the offering basket later during service, uh, or you could drop it in the back connect desk. In addition to that, there should be Bibles in uh, several of the rows. Excuse me, that is our gift to you. Um, And if you don't have one, or if you're new, or if you know someone who could benefit from having God's word in their hands, that is our gift uh, to you. Uh, So a couple of weeks ago, we started a series uh, on the book of Philippians titled Citizens. And uh, we started it actually back in May, walked through the first chapter, then took a break. And a couple of weeks ago, we started our time back up, beginning in chapter two. And now we're walking into to chapter three. Chapter two, as I mentioned last week, just a brief recap. Chapter two, as I mentioned, is really this chapter that is filled with examples of humility. Uh, one, the definition of humility, that we are to consider others as more important than ourselves uh, and that we are, as a result, we have the mind of Christ. And so Paul goes on to give four uh, uh, just giant examples of what humility is and what it looks like, how it's modeled, uh, beginning with Jesus. And then he lists uh, uh, himself as a, as a drink offering, that if his life is to be sacrificed, it is worth it for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and then last week we looked at two men, two honorable men named Timothy and Epaphroditus. This week, we start chapter 3. Uh, and, uh, and, and just to give you a little bit of a, of, a, of a background, as Paul opens up chapter 3, the first word he uses is, finally, Uh, Now, that doesn't mean that he's beginning to close his letter. If you've read through Philippians, you know that we still have another chapter to go. But that word finally is basically just a transition. In other words, he is closing the topic from chapter 2, and he is starting a new one in chapter 3. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. As I mentioned, I just want to dive into our time just because of the the amount of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. So if you take notes, I hope you write quickly And if you have your Bibles open, I hope you can scan through books even faster, right? Because you got those memorized. No? Okay. Well, you will today. Here we go. This is uh, Philippians chapter 3. I'll read it and I'll pray and then we'll, we'll dive in. And so Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of god uh, by worship by the spirit of god and glory in christ jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though i myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh i have more the dead. Let's pray. God, as we dive into your word, my simple prayer is that you would be made much of, that Jesus would be glorified, that Jesus would be made big, that Jesus would ultimately be the center of this sermon, that Jesus would ultimately be uh, the center of our worship and the center of our affection. God, I pray that you would remove me and that it would be you at work and speaking through me. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be present with us at work in the hearts, stirring our affections for you so that we would bring Jesus much glory so that people would come to know Jesus and ultimately he would be glorified. God, we thank you again for this time. Pray that this would be worship. Uh, Pray that this would be fruitful. And it would be beneficial. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Are you guys ready? All right. Here we go. We're going to uh, single out verses one through three. I'll try and knock this out in chunks, but we're going to begin with verses one through three. And, and before we dive into verses one through three, the title of this sermon is, is the greatest testimony ever. Uh, and and we're going to see why in just a bit. But if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, when we look at testimonies, testimonies have three parts. It has who you were uh, when you did not know Jesus. It's who you are in light of Jesus' work and then what you're doing now, what God is doing in you. So you can look at it as Pre-conversion, conversion, conversion, and then post-conversion. Every single Christian has this story. The details of how it works out may be different in your life and in my life, but nevertheless, we all have a testimony. And what we're going to see through the Apostle Paul in this chapter is that he's ultimately going to reveal who he once was and how he counts that as a loss. But he sets it up in verses 1-3. through In verses one through three, he begins, finally, my brother. So he's talking to the Philippian church. We know he's talking to Christians. Finally, I'm closing one topic. I'm moving on to the other. Rejoice in the Lord. I want you to underline that. That is something, I'd mentioned this last week. That's something that Paul talks about repeatedly in the book of Philippians. He talks about joy or rejoicing in the Lord, that it is a dense theme in the book of Philippians. And in a moment, we're going to see why he tells them to rejoice. In other words, it's not random and it's not empty spirituality. It is something that has meaning, depth and density. And so he says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. The reason Paul says to rejoice in the Lord is because it safeguards the Philippians. The reason we rejoice in the Lord is so that we would guard against false teaching, so that we would be uh, safeguards of false teaching. He goes on, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Before diving into that, as Paul is saying I'm going to write the same things to you, essentially saying I'm going to repeat some things to you. I'm going to, I've already mentioned some of these, but I'm going to say them again. It's good. Uh, I don't mind doing it. It's safe for you. I think part of the reason, or a couple of reasons, as to why Paul repeats himself is because, number one, Christians are forgetful. We've talked about this previously. Christians are incredibly forgetful. And so Paul takes initiative to remind them of the work of Jesus. He takes initiative to remind them of who they are. And what God has done. And oftentimes in your life and in my life, we are quick to forget. That we are quick to forget who God says we are and even faster to default to who we once were. And so we need reminding. And I love that Paul says it. It's not, it's not it's, I got no beef, I'll tell you again. I like that. The second thing is that Christians need encouragement. If we look at the context of the Philippian church, they're on the verge of experiencing persecution. In chapter four, we're going to see that they are uh, experiencing disunity within the church and that persecution is coming from outside of the church. Christians need to be encouraged. They need to be encouraged with the truth about the gospel. They need to be encouraged with the word of God. And so that is something that the apostle Paul takes on, that he encourages the Philippian church. And then number three, as it pertains specifically to these verses, the third thing is, that Christians must stay alert. Because Christians are forgetful, because Christians need encouragement, Christians need to stay alert, especially against false teaching. I'll reread verse two. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He doesn't talk about, uh, or it doesn't say who he's talking about. We just know that there are false teachers coming. And so he's telling them, look out. That word look out is similar to when he uses the phrase to stand firm. Because of uh, who you are in Christ, because of the encouragement I am giving you, you need to stay alert. You need to stand firm in the Word of God. You need to rejoice in the Lord, especially when it comes to false teaching. It is coming. It is near. Look out. We can only look out if we are grounded in the truth of the gospel. We can only look out if we are secure in our identity based on the work of Christ. And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, "Look out, stand firm, stay alert, stay awake, be awake." And he says, "Look out for dogs, evildoers and mutilators." And it's, it's not necessarily a play on words, but it is, in other words, he is turning the tables on, on uh, excuse me, on, on, on Jews. See, the, the, the context of, of verse two is, what he's, is that he's saying, uh, "There are people who are coming that are trying to sway you from the truth about God, and the truth about his gospel, and the truth about his work, they're going to sway you by saying, you need to do more things. You need to add to the work of God. You need to add to the message of salvation if you really do want to belong to Jesus. That's why he's saying, look out And the words, the insults that he uses are not random. Like he's not just talking smack. He's literally turning the tables on the Jewish people and he calls them dogs. Like that's kind of like he's cussing them out. When he calls them dogs in Jewish culture, to be called a dog was a crazy and ridiculous insult because they viewed dogs as animals who ate other dead animals, who ate corpse. And as Peter says, that they returned to eat their own vomit. Like it was an insult to be called a dog. And so Paul is turning it around and saying, these guys are coming. You need to look out. You need to look out for the dogs. He turns it on them. He says, you need to look out for evildoers. Because these Jews that were coming in, or that were about to come into the the Philippian church, or that they were going to try to sway uh, Philippian Christians... What they're going to say is that they need to do more stuff if they really, truly want to be saved. It's not just works-free salvation. You actually need to earn your salvation. And Paul says, no, they're wrong. They're evildoers. That's the irony of that insult. That those who think they're doing the right thing are actually evildoers. Therefore, look out and rejoice in the Lord. Look out or stand firm and rejoice in the Lord. Be alert and rejoice in the Lord because they're coming. And then the last thing he says is that they're mutilators. That they hold fast to circumcision. That the external act of circumcision is what counts you righteous. And what Paul is saying is that they are missing it. That sure, you might be circumcised, but unless you are circumcised in the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, then it really doesn't matter. And these guys are like missing it. They are mutilating the flesh. And so he's turning all of these insults onto them as a way for the Philippians to look out, as a way for them to be alert. And the encouragement for us is that we are to be grounded in the word of God, that we are to be immersed. One of the guys I was meeting with today, he said, use valley language. And so uh, what do we say, marinate? You want to marinate yourself in the word because everybody barbecues, right? <laughs> it was chewy, Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about marinating. When you, when you marinate meat like you're intentional about the spices you use and the kind of way you do it because you want it to come out right, marinate in the Word, right? That means spend time in the Word. Whatever. That's what Paul is ultimately getting at. Be on the lookout. And as you're on the lookout, rejoice in the Lord. Because they're coming. About two to three years prior to this, he wrote to the church in Galatia because that's exactly what had happened over there. And so he's reminding them here, they're coming. They're coming be on the lookout and you must rejoice in the Lord. If you're gonna stand against these guys or if you're gonna stand against false teaching, you need to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the work of God. Moving on. Verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul teaches about the significance of circumcision specifically in the heart in Romans 2. He writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul addresses the Philippians and calls them that we are the circumcision. We are the circumcised because there has been a work of the Holy Spirit in us. And because of that, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we worship God by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. There's a giant contrast in in verse 4 from what Paul just talked about uh, when it comes to Christians and false teachers. Those false teachers he calls dogs, he calls evildoers, he calls mutilators, and yet those who are Christians he says that we worship by the power of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of God. That that's why we worship. We worship because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and we worship to bring God glory. And then number two, we worship and have zero confidence in our flesh, which is completely opposite of what the people Paul is talking about. He's saying that we have zero confidence in our flesh, our capabilities, our personal or self-righteousness, our own glory. We have zero confidence in that, and instead we put all confidence in the glory and work of Jesus as we worship. And when we worship, we boast in Jesus as a response of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the believer. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying in verse 4. And he continues, excuse me, that was verse three. And then he continues, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So what he is saying is, these are uh, the, the false teachers. These are the false teachers. This is who we are. Now, because of those false teachers, I know exactly what it's like. He says, I know exactly what it's like. If anyone can boast in doing extra, doing more, and being awesome, it should be me. That's what Paul would say. It should be me. That's what he says here. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, confidence in themselves, confidence in their self-righteousness, he says, I have more. And then beginning in verse 5, what we're going to see is Paul lists seven things. Four of them are self-portraits, Three of them are achievements from his past. He's going to show us just how awesome he once was. And so he moves, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, that he was a first-class citizen. That his Jewish family upheld the law. As it states in Genesis 17, he was circumcised on the eighth day. His parents did it the right way. He was a first-class Jew. And then he goes on to say, of the people of Israel. He's saying, I was purebred. I am purebred. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm purebred. I am untainted by Gentile blood. I'm a descendant of God's chosen people. Of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, man, the history of Israel began with my people. began with the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was the first tribe that, or was the tribe that produced Israel's first king, that's first Samuel. Uh, The tribe of Benjamin was loyal to the tribe of Judah when the other tribes in the Old Testament turned their back. He's saying, That's who I come from. That's how awesome we were. Those are my people. And then he says, A Hebrew of Hebrews. Man, I was educated. Or I am educated. I went to the best seminaries. I've memorized the first five books of the Bible. I am, col- I am deep in my culture. I have significance in my education. I have significance in my culture and in my heritage. That's who he was. And then he goes on to say, he goes on to talk about, excuse me, he goes on to talk about some achievements. And we're, we're going to park here for a while. So if you think I'm going fast, I'll, I'll come back to this. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. You know what the word Pharisee means? It means means separated ones. It means separated ones. That he was so confident in his strict application to the law in his life. He's like, man, as to the law, as a Pharisee, I was awesome. I get it. I've done it. I'm so good at uh, obeying God. And then he says, as for zeal, a persecutor of the church. Excuse me. As zeal, persecutor of the church. What that means when he's talking being, about being a persecutor of the church, that meant he had a ferocious commitment to the purity of Israel's religious practice, even if it cost people their lives. In Galatians 1, he briefly talks about this. He says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's who he once was. He's like, man, my zeal, I had commitment to persecute the church. That's how good I was. And then he goes on, finishing. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, that Paul is personally satisfied with his upright behavior, that he is confident in his record of moral performance. Let's go to Matthew 23. No, better yet, we'll go there. We are going to Matthew 23. Let's keep going. So he gives seven things. Man, look how awesome I was. Look at what I accomplished. And then in verse seven, he says, but. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of. Of Christ. Now, when he's talking about whatever gain, he is talking about everything and anything that he had previously family, heritage, lineage, education, status all of those things he counts as a loss and he uses a counting type of terms. The word count. Comes out three times. This dude is mulling over who he once was and what he has done in light of the work of God in him. He says he counts it as a loss. Everything that he accomplished, everything that he once was, everything that he once had, it is a loss. For, that word for is going to give us the result. For the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. He counts everything that he once had as a loss. And when we look at those seven, uh, those seven things that Paul lists, self-portraits, achievements, man, how quickly can we put ourselves in that category or in those categories? Circumcised on the eighth day. Man, I was raised in the church. I've been in church all my life. Maybe that's your story. Man, I went to Sunday school. I did it all the way I was supposed to uh, of the people of Israel. My parents, man, they were Christians. And so I was always around Christians. I was always around the right people. The tribe of Benjamin. My church was awesome. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Man, I went to Bible college. I did some seminary. I have memorized scripture. I've read some theological books because you're so cool. Perhaps you were a Pharisee, or have been a Pharisee, or are a Pharisee. Man, look how awesome I obey God. Because I understand his word, and I'm intellectually and theologically minded. Man, I'm really good at keeping God's promises. A persecutor of the church, perhaps you're not necessarily persecuting Christians by dragging them back into Jerusalem. But instead of working alongside of Christians, you're constantly fighting with them. You're constantly fighting with other Christians. And then under the law, blameless, look how awesome I am. I've done all the right things. I've said all the right words. I've gone to church every Sunday at 10.30. I'm good to go. We can very quickly look at Paul and be like, that's totally not me. That's exactly who we are. Now, in light of that, let's listen to what Jesus says about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. This is verse, beginning in verse 25, and we're going to go all the way through verse 28. Jesus begins by saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean." Jesus elsewhere says that we are defiled by, what, by what's inside of us, not because of what comes inside of us. He continues in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness so you out so you also outwardly appear righteous to others but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness way too many times do christians bank on their moral conduct and on their own self righteous behavior and what jesus is calling us is hypocrites He's saying that you're banking on your self-righteousness and not on the finished work of Christ. That you're banking on where you went to school, the church that you were raised, the verses that you memorized, but you're not banking on the finished work of Jesus. That all of these things are profits to you as opposed to what Paul says where he says, all of those things are losses and the only gain that I need is Christ. That's what he is saying. And way too many times, Do we negotiate our own personality, our upbringing, our intelligence, our theological clarity? Whatever you want to do, we're constantly negotiating so that it would compete with Christ. And we miss it. We miss it constantly. Going back to verse 7, Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, Indeed, indeed. Indeed, I count, there's that word again. Indeed, I count everything as a loss. When he says the word indeed, he's, he's saying that in the present tense. He is saying, man, I have zero second thoughts about my life from the past. I don't trip about it. I don't worry about it. That's not who I was. And even if I still had those, those are a loss because I count Christ as my gain. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That word knowing, I want you to circle it. We'll come back to it in a bit. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul counts everything and anything that competes or that stands to compete with Christ. Anything that stands to compete with Christ, he counts it as a loss. And if you find yourself negotiating with things so that you can share them with Christ, then it is not a loss. You have gained nothing. And he goes on to say, counts everything as a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That means acknowledging that word knowing, acknowledging Christ as Lord And all that was lost, all that was of worth, all that was of value, all that was of significance, he counts it as rubbish. Same thing, that word, he's being specific, he's using harsh language, he's not trying to be cool and British, like he's using a real word. That word rubbish means garbage, it means filth, it means human excrement. Okay, let your mind go there. Okay, that's what Paul is saying when he uses the word rubbish, And it is also a play on words from Isaiah 64, where he says that, man, even on your best day, your good works are like filthy rags. I'll just end that there. He's using strong language. He's saying, all the good that I had, all the good that I'd done, all that I've come from, all who I once was, it's rubbish. It's rubbish. And the only gain I have is Christ. The only gain I need is Christ. For the sake of Christ and to be found in him. He continues. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. We're going to pause there. That first half, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that sentence has two parts. What Paul is saying, and I'll actually... Open this, so I want to keep you going up. What Paul is saying uh, when he—I'll reread that one more time, just so that I'm not lost. He goes on to say, "Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law." He's saying two things in that one phrase. He's saying number one, the righteousness that I have—any righteousness that I have—doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from me. In fact, when I thought it came from me, I was actually persecuting the church. When I did count righteousness as my own, I actually murdered Christians. And then number two, his righteousness, uh, excuse me, yeah, the righteousness not as own is number two, uh, he goes on to say in that second half, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law. In other words, the righteousness that I have not only does it not come from me, because when it did, I persecuted the church. Number two, it doesn't come from me obeying the law; it comes from the obedience of Christ. That's where the righteousness comes in. And actually, I want to pause. I want to pause here before moving on, because we can make much of Paul in light of what's about to happen, the righteousness that he's going to talk about. I want to take us back briefly to uh, his conversion. I want to take us back to Acts. This is Acts chapter nine verses 1 through 6. This is, how, this is how Paul came to know Jesus. And I want to continue to, to, to hash this out. This is verse 1 through 6. So Luke writes, But Saul, that's who Paul once was, but Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, Men or women, excuse me, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The term Christian doesn't come out in the book of Acts until Acts 15, somewhere around there. Prior to that, anybody who was a follower of Jesus were known as people who belonged to the way, right? Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly... Underline, highlight, circle that word. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Soul, Soul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, listen to his response. Check it. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Paul was eager to drag back and persecute Christians. This is who he once was. He was eager to go to Damascus. He wanted permission to go to Damascus so that he could find Christians, drag them out of their homes, drag them back to Jerusalem, try them, and perhaps even execute them. He was eager to do this. And then what we read in Acts 9 is that suddenly... Suddenly, that when Christ reveals himself, it's all of a sudden. There may be a process leading up to it, but when Jesus reveals himself, it's suddenly. Paul recognizes Jesus as. Lord, The Pharisee, the persecutor, Saul, he recognizes Jesus as Lord. The Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee, the persecutor of the church, the guy from the tribe of Benjamin, the guy who's purebred, he recognizes Jesus as Lord, falling to the ground and acknowledge his, acknowledges his, his lordship. That it happens suddenly, and in faith, Paul crosses the line from being an enemy of God to a friend, from lost to found, from wandered off to reconciled. Paul crosses that line. And as we continue in verse eight, coming back to our time in Philippians, as we continue in verse, excuse me, verse nine, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Faith is a human response empowered by the grace of God. Let's say that one more time. Faith is a human response empowered by God's grace. Anything else leads us back to self righteousness. Anything else leads us back to self-righteousness. And what Paul is saying in that verse is that God grants us the gift of faith by regenerating our hearts. Ezekiel 36 says that he gives us his spirit. He regenerates our hearts. And as our hearts are regenerated, we go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And we step in faith, not blind faith, not wishful thinking, but with certainty in light of Jesus revealing himself to us. And any and all righteousness that Paul has, any and all righteousness that we may have, is because of the obedience and work and death of Christ on the cross. Our righteousness does not come from moral conduct, but by God declaring us righteous on the account of the finished work of Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in verse 10, he concludes by saying, uh, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This dependence on faith does several things. Number one, Paul says that he may know him. Earlier, I told you to underline the other, where he says, uh, man, knowing Christ as Lord. What he's talking about there is acknowledging Jesus as Lord. When he says here in verse 10, that I may know him, he means to further know him intimately as a relationship, to grow in that relationship. Kind of like in a marriage. When I married my wife, uh, we knew, we know one another. We knew one another. We knew a lot about one another. But over the course of several years, we have grown to know each other more. That's what he is talking about when he says that I may know him. That he would grow to know Jesus more. That he would grow to know him intimately, relationally, intellectually, morally. That he would grow to know Jesus more. That's his desire. And that is what is dependent on faith. You see, faith in Christ always looks away from self. Achievement, And he goes on to talk about the power of the resurrection and sharing in Christ's suffering so that he would become like him. The power of Jesus' resurrection is what empowers Paul to suffer as Christ suffered. Remember, who he was, what he's done, he's counted it as a loss. And he is well aware that in his chief pursuit of Jesus, there will be suffering. And he says that, man, I know that there's going to be suffering and that I will suffer like Christ, but it is his resurrection. The spirit that resurrected him is what's going to empower me to continue moving forward. There will be suffering. And he's saying, I know. I know. And if that's what it looks like to be made more like Jesus, then I I can do this. I can do this. And I love the last one. This is verse 11. we We're almost done. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's talking about in the last day being with Jesus. And I love the way he says it, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's not that Paul is, it's not that Paul doesn't have assurance that he'll be with Jesus. But he speaks with humility. In other words, in that last section, it's more like he's saying, who am I to be with Jesus but a sinner? Who am I to be with him but a sinner? It would be so awesome if I'm with him. That's what Paul is saying, that that he may attain the resurrection of the dead. Here's some closing thoughts, y'all. The only practical application that I have for you, I'm sure you could pull a lot, but the only practical application that I want you walking away with is that you are to change your priorities. It's that you are to change your priorities so that Christ would be your chief pursuit. That's the practical application. We saw who Paul once was in light of him uh, describing it. We looked at even his story, his testimony, his conversion. And then we see what he says about who he was, that it is a loss, that all he wants is Christ. That is his gain. All of a sudden, his priorities changed. And his chief pursuit now is Jesus. That's a guy writing from prison. His chief pursuit is Christ. The only practical application, Christian, the only practical application that I have for you in light of verses 1-11 through 11 is that you change your priorities and that Jesus would be your chief pursuit. And so in light of that, you, Christian, repent of your self-righteousness. It's not a question. Listen to me on this. It's not a question of whether or not you struggle with pride. It's where do you struggle with pride. I'll say that one more time. I want you to listen to this. Repent of your self-righteousness. Discard your self-righteousness. It is not a question of whether you struggle with pride or not. It's where you struggle with pride. And repent Man, turn away from your self-righteousness and make much of Jesus. Bring Him glory and stop competing with Him. And if you don't know Jesus, He invites you to come to Him. He invites you to come to Him, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be redeemed, to be made new, and to be found in Him, turn away from your sin and trust in Him. Trust in Him like Paul did. How he counted everything as a loss for the sake of Christ. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. May Jesus be our chief pursuit. Let's pray. God we constantly uh, we constantly miss it we constantly miss it because I think we're constantly um, negotiating I think two things we constantly miss it because we are negotiating with our sin our flesh our own desire our own glory we're constantly negotiating with that and then constantly competing with Jesus and 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 the truth is the truth is that that's not sustainable. That that is not sustainable. And so God, this is where we fail you. And through Christ, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us of our sin, our self-righteousness, our, uh, our, our moral performance, our moral excellency? Do, doing good things is a result of of your work in us. And yet we are constantly turning it around and ultimately making it about ourselves. Lord, may we be like Paul and denounce everything we were, everything we had, any significance, any value. We would count it as a loss and that we would ultimately embrace the person and work of your son, Jesus. Jesus. That 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 he would be our ultimate gain, that any righteousness that we do have in us is a result of his obedience uh, as a result of his obedience on the cross. Any righteousness that we have attained is because of the righteousness and obedience of another, not our own, so God would you would you wreck shop in our hearts? so that we would make much of Jesus, so that we would make His name big, so that we would glorify Him, so that more people would come to know Him, and that that would be reflected in our life. And God, as we walk into a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, this would be a continued uh, portion of our worship This is where we release the control we think we have. This is where, uh, man, if if we wrestle with financial self-righteousness, this is the way in which we can be released from it by worshiping you and trusting you by giving our stuff. By giving you our stuff. That we would reflect generosity, that we would reflect uh, sacrifice, that we would reflect faithfulness all on the account of the work of Jesus. So God, we thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.